0: Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. It's budget week, but there's a lot more than that going on in the UK. Head of the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, revealing his budget this week. Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, was in California announcing the latest steps for the AUKUS Defence Pact. That was the same day that we had the update of the UK's integrated review. Two years on from the last one, has the UK finally clarified its foreign policy on Russia, China, defence? Does it have the money to do it? We'll be talking about all that. And this week, we'll also swing east and talk about Georgia and the recent anti-government protest in Tbilisi. Way back after the Rose Revolution in 2003, many hoped Georgia was on a path towards closer ties with NATO and the EU. But Russia's invasion in 2008, which has been called Europe's first 21st century war, led to very few consequences for Russia. Some argue laid the ground for its invasion of Crimea and then more of Ukraine last year. We're going to talk about the state of Georgia's democracy now and how worried we should be about the treatment of former President Mikhail Saakashvili, all that and much more. Joining me down the line from Tbilisi is Natia Saskuria, an Associate Fellow with the Royal United Services Institute and a young advisor to Chatham House. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, thank you very much for having me.
0: Great to have you here. And our other guest this week is arthur snell a former diplomat and host of the podcast doomsday watch who's joining us from where arthur
2: uh from cheltenham so uh, not quite as remote as tbilisi um, and of course it's cheltenham race week so it's a busy time for our town
0: busy and plenty of hazards thank you for joining us as well and joining them both are my chatham house colleagues creon butler the director of our global economy and finance program welcome hello bronwyn great to have you here Professor Andrew Dorman, the editor of our journal, International Affairs, is joining us from Montreal, is it?
3: That's great. Greetings, Bronwyn, out at the International Studies Association Conference in Montreal.
0: Very, very good to have you here. And we have Alice bion a research fellow with our Europe program. Very good to have you here, Alice.
4: Thank you very much, Bronwyn. Very happy to be here.
0: warm welcome to you all. I'm here alone in the studio, which is unusual, um, but we will make up for it. Let's start with the UK. What a week for UK foreign policy. There was AUKUS, there was the integrated review and the budget, which has some repercussions for that. Arthur, maybe I can start with you and with AUKUS. What did you make of it?
2: Well, it was clearly a deepening of what was the initial announcement last year that, of course, caused such diplomatic ructions. Uh, I think there's uh, two elements to focus on. There's the big uh, projects to supply Australia with nuclear submarines and, of course, everyone knows about that we've got a bit more detail australia is going to acquire initially uh, us submarines and then eventually the us uh, the uk and australia will jointly manufacture um inter, interoperable interchangeable nuclear submarines but we're talking way into the future none of these things will be um, sort of sailing the seas for for a couple of decades so perhaps the other more interesting bit is so called pillar 2 of the aukus pact which is a much uh, wider deepening of, um, of our sort of security and and um, military cooperation with Australia and obviously with the US as well. And this goes into technology, cyber, a whole range of, of activities and shows certainly that, that, that in spite of the diplomatic storm that it caused, particularly in relations with France, that this is very much an ongoing, ongoing program.
0: You describe that in a more open-ended way Than I'd expected because I I detected um, something of a brisk tone uh, in this integrated review, the the update, um, in saying, look, uh, OK, here's the Indo-Pacific tilt uh, um, uh, and that's it. We've got AUKUS, we've got a few other things and that's what we're going to do. And it seemed to me that the realism about the uh, lack of money or resources will come onto that, underpin that. But it sounds the way you're looking at it as if the UK is making really quite a substantial commitment that might grow.
2: I think it's fair to say that there are definitely limitations to uh, the UK's so-called Indo-Pacific tilt. And ultimately, one of the things that we've seen in the integrated review refresh is more realism. You know, we are still a European country and that's actually where we've got to focus. But it seems to me that AUKUS is a major program and and it may may be the entirety of our Indo-Pacific sort of inclinations on the national security side of things. But, but I think we shouldn't underestimate its significance.
0: Andrew, you looked very closely at the integrated Review two years ago. What did you make of this one?
3: I think how is the, the strategic farce we've seen since the 2015 reviews, what we've got here...
0: Did you say strategic f- made worse. farce? Yeah, I did. Yes. All right. I just wanted to be absolutely it, clear that I'd heard you. Go on. <laughs>
3: certainly. The, the refresh... Makes a number of statements and everything has changed to a degree, and there's the points being made on that one. But what we've seen since the 2015 review onwards is threats are identified as immediate. 2015 it was Russia. 2021 it was Russia with China in, in in the medium term, and under the profession now it's Russia now and China in a epoch-changing moment. But actually, what they promised in terms of capabilities and and support what we're seen is delayed by a decade if that's we what we're doing is to perpetuate the informal 10-year rule that was being been part of the national security policy since 2010 it made sense in 2010 it's not made any sense since 2015.
0: let me just pick you up on some of this because it seems to me you're not saying that the identification or maybe you are the identification of Russia and China in a different way as priorities for the UK to focus on. Are you saying that that is wrong, or simply that it doesn't have the resources to make good on that?
3: I'm saying we've got no. We've either got the resources or sense the ideas of how we're going to go about doing those challenges. So, for example, the current refresh talks about deterring China, but there's no sort of engagement or thought or identification about what deterrence actually means. All we know at the moment is we have a cut. the UK had a couple of patrol vessels Um Based in the Indo-Pacific and uh, periodic air the aircraft carrier, um, that is very very limited. And if, if there's any challenge to it, probably the, the advice would be to run away.
0: Now, I would completely agree with you about the Indo-Pacific, so where I've been very sceptical of, of of the tilt. Maybe not a helpful word in itself, implying uh, that the UK was tilting away from Europe, at least, and other things. But um, would you apply that that scepticism as well to what it's saying about russia
3: i would i mean if you think in 2015 the review said russia is the immediate threat they didn't really do much about it 2023 we're identifying and we've seen with the russian invasion of Ukraine it's an immediate threat but actually the the claim of a five five billion pound increase in defense spending in the next two years actually isn't an increase in many respects what it, it consists of is some money on nuclear infrastructure, which was already pledged as part of the strategic nuclear replacement and replacement of war stocks and equipment being handed over to Ukraine. There's nothing new. There's nothing added to it. If Russia is such a big threat, a lot of either. We're doing absolutely nothing about it. In fact, what we've seen since 2021 is a series of defense cutbacks in terms of capabilities.
2: Can I come in here? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree with Andrew on the point of resources. Uh, and, you know, it is basically a defense cut, if you in real terms, if you look at the numbers. But I suppose you, you could make the argument that um, what we are currently doing via Ukraine um, is engaging in a fairly sort of high-level kinetic contact, uh, co- conflict with Russia, which is seriously degrading its military. So I think it would be hard to say that we're not doing anything. I mean, in, in the sense that the, Russia's military... Capabilities are vastly reduced now than they were a year ago, and that is in part because of the commitments we've made to the Ukrainians. And some might call it a proxy war. Of course, then you get into very, you know, difficult diplomatic language. But I mean, you could argue that that's actually what we're doing.
0: Creon, do you want to come in on this? Uh, because resources on many fronts um, are strained. Uh, the UK doesn't have money for all the things it wants to do. Do you? Uh, t- to you, is is the UK really? Um, uh handicapped by in 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 making these kind of pledges
5: um well I, I i mean i think this is um in a sense underlies what um what andrew and Arthur uh, have been discussing uh i mean if you look at uh, the figures that came out in the latest uh the office of responsibility has given a, a growth projection which essentially gives you a a figure of average growth of 1% per annum from just before the pandemic up until uh, Twenty-seven, twenty-eight. Uh, now that compares with uh, what growth used to be in the UK before the financial crisis of uh, around two point eight percent per annum. So you know this illustrates, in a sense, we have at the moment with the economy working as it does um, far fewer resources to work with. And underlying that, in a sense, is is the crucial figure of productivity growth, which um, the OBR uh, still estimates at only one and three quarter percent per year so uh I think this is you know crucial to the situation we face. We might ta- discuss a bit further as to how far you know the budget actually seeks to address it and I think you know in a in, in a sense for the first time in a few years, they are quite specifically trying to target some of the issues that underline that growth performance um but i I think in a situation where that is going to take some time to correct, the government really has to say uh has to make a choice and has to say either. We are going to do a certain number of things. Uh, they're going to be a priority and we're going to cost them and everything else will um, be pitched in the light of that. Uh, or they're going to have to say we're going to do much less, um, be modest about what we're going to do, um, because we simply can't afford more than that. Uh, and I think this is a choice that, that to some extent has been ducked. The other thing I would just say, I mean, there is a figure rough, you know, in the review of 2.5% per year of GDP, I, I do think that
0: with no date, focusing
5: on sort of shares of GDP, isn't with no date, but even just the idea of saying, you know, we're going to spend X amount of GDP on defense or, or broader, more broadly defined. Um, I, I think this is to some, this is a kind of dodge. What you really need to do is say, these are the specific things we're going to do. This is what they're going to cost. That may be more than 2.5%, it may be less than 2.5%. But I think that's a much more honest way of approaching things.
0: Alice, what do you make? I mean, th- this integrated review was able to talk about Europe in a way that uh, the one two years ago barely was. And we've obviously seen some uh, recent improvements in the relations, particularly with, uh, with, with France um, and over the Northern Ireland Protocol. What do you think this review means for UK security commitments to Europe?
4: So I think, I mean, I would agree with a lot of what's been said, especially in terms of the the gap between the the commitments uh, and the the capacity. I would be maybe a little bit more positive in terms of the role that the UK has been playing for European security, especially over the past year. Um, Obviously, you know, all Europeans, the UK included, still heavily, you know, depend on the US for the security of the continent and and do have sort of long-term goals and, and challenges that we'll be struggling to meet. But I think uh, you know, we work quite a bit with countries, especially Northern Europe and the Baltics, and they have been sort of quite happy and supportive of the role the UK has been playing with the Joint Expeditionary Force, the the EFP in Estonia, and the UK providing sort of those uh, security guarantees to Finland and Sweden, even though we don't know exactly what that means for now. So I think with, with the integrated refresh desk to a certain extent to sort of feel the, the Europe gap and sort of a re-engagement with the continent over the past six months, recommitting to the, the UK's role in European defence with a focus on Northern Europe, etc. I think it also clarifies the limited extent of the Indo-Pacific tilt when it comes to defence. Um, obviously, the, the language didn't really help and I think uh, created expectations in the Indo-Pacific and alarmed allies in Europe. So I think it moderates that a, a little bit. But I agree that the concern is really about the UK's ability to deliver and to sustain the commitments. I mean, the, the headline increase of five billion will focus mostly on sort of nuclear ammunition. So as, as both Andrew, Arthur, and, and I think Brian as well said, uh, it, it doesn't, um, really address the issue of the, the filling the capability gaps, but also modernizing, supporting Ukraine. Um, and I think a lot of the important questions also on the UK's army, the war fighting division are still left. Uh, to be decided later so we should have a, an update of the defense command paper in july and i think this is something that not only in the uk but also british european allies will be looking at you know we'll have a, a summit a NATO summit in vilnius in july where we'll take stock of the progress made since madrid and i think that will be a bit of a reality check because when it comes to collective defense it's not about you know Oh, i don't have the, the capacity now i'll send you know someone or a brigade next year it's about you know you really need to shore up this this security and defense and i think we're not there yet so um i think let's wait and see what happens uh in the summer with the uh, with the defense command paper but th- there is a gap between the commitments uh, and the means and i don't really see a way to be honest of, of bridging that uh, over the next six months in the current economic context so yeah. i think that will be a big challenge for the UK and for yeah. the Alliance as a well. whole.
0: Again, back to the money question. And Natia, sitting where you are in Georgia at the moment and, and listening to this kind of thing, what is it that, um, that you would like to see from the UK's foreign policy? The UK uh, has always
1: been a very important strategic partner to Georgia, and uh, the UK has been investing in uh, very crucial areas for Georgia, such as cybersecurity, countering disinformation to strengthen Georgia's ability to defend itself from Russian malign influence and build uh, the wider societal resilience, the whole of society approach. In that sense, the continuous support would be absolutely crucial for Georgia's security and defense. And the UK has always supported Georgia's European and Euro-Atlantic integration aspirations uh, that are indeed very important for Georgia's future. I think it is important that the Integrated Review Refresh identifies Russia as an existential threat to the UK, Europe, and entire rules-based order. Um, the support for Ukraine uh, to keep its sovereignty and uh, deny Russia any ability, any strategic benefit from its invasion is also identified uh, as a priority and this would be um, i think one of the decisive factors for georgia's future Uh, the western success to contain russia is the only way uh, to stop kremlin from pursuing its aggressive policies against georgia and like-minded countries where uh, the majority of the population supports the pro-European, uh, pro-Western aspirations. In that sense, this determination is very crucial. But one area where I would like to see more UK involvement, more, more UK engagement and presence uh, is the Black Sea security. The wider Black Sea security is becoming crucial for European security. And I think it has a direct impact on the stability and security uh, in the European Union. And of course, Georgia being a literal state uh, is directly subjected to Russian aggression uh, within the Black Sea. And um, it also has, the war in Ukraine has also created uh, opportunities for literal countries to become more engaged with European uh, European Union, with NATO allies. And in that sense, I think it would be uh, very important to see UK presence uh, within the Black Sea and more engagement when it comes to sectoral engagement in areas that are crucial for, for both Georgia and uh, the UK, such as, uh, for instance, um, uh, strength and support to, to towards countering disinformation, something where uh, Georgia can also share its uh, experience and UK can provide very useful
0: advice and very useful uh, experience experience sharing in that sense really important points there, both on the Black Sea and on disinformation misinformation where the UK can also play a role just before we leave the question of, of, of the UK we've got this portrait of country wanting to do an awful lot uh, not enough money and we have here just a, um, a bit of difference between Andrew's uh, very sceptical account of whether the UK is really doing very much at all at the moment and Andrew's and others slightly more upbeat last thoughts anyone want to jump in?
3: I think as Alice points out the big missing thing here is the, the defence command. Um, we've got a lot of changes on nuance and language in the integrated, the new integrated review refresh, but we actually have very little idea about what what this will mean in practice and so forth. And until we get it, its command paper out and what it says, um, we're speculating. But what we do know that the finances is that side doesn't look very good, and we do know that there doesn't seem to be. Some areas like deterrence, dimension, the power we power opponents and so forth via the economic route are just not being answered.
0: Good prompt to throw it forward to Prom- that, that like- command paper. Crean, last last thought.
5: Yeah, I mean, uh, just just to say, I think Andy's is exactly right to focus on the detail there. I mean, just imagining how the Treasury will look at this. I mean, they will want to say okay, we've got a certain amount of money, how can we make the absolute maximum use of this? And presumably there's a lot of learning that's coming out from what's happening in Ukraine that will be relevant to how we should spend the money we have going forward. But also there'll be a whole set of issues around um, you know, our defense industry, how it's organized, the extent to which we rely on US versus European cooperation, and in a sense how we get the maximum from uh, the money that we do have. And one of the questions in that review will be, to what extent we address those underlying issues as well as the concrete things that we want to deliver.
0: Okay, well, we'll come back to you all in the summer on that. And we can't possibly go get into all of this topic right now, but I wrote something on the Integrative Review, which you can find on our website, and there was extremely good Twitter thread by our colleague Ben Bland, head of our Asia program about the Indo-Pacific tilt. Let us pivot east to Georgia, our second topic, and we're looking... At this question of why Russia's foreign policy ambitions are not an academic exercise, but the life of people every day. Nadia, we've all been struck by the images of the protests in Tbilisi. Can you just tell us, in a basic way, what is the law that people are protesting about?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think the um, image of a Georgian woman passionately um, and fearlessly waving a EU flag against the uh, water cannons in the middle of the protest was a demonstration of how frustrated the majority of, large majority of the Georgian population felt about this law that has been initiated by the, um, passed by the Georgian parliament last week. Uh, the law is uh, very similar, and its, uh, resemblance, uh, it's resemblance is uh, what is the most problematic issue here about with the Russian law. Russian law on foreign agents that was introduced in 2012 uh, by uh, by 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 the president Putin, and he has been since then he has been weaponizing this law to exert extreme in- in- pressure on the civil society and media. And in due course, um, uh, it was uh, this law became one of the major uh, uh, weapons uh, through which uh, Putin was able to target even individual citizens who were uh, who were um, uh, expressing their anti-Kremlin views. Yeah, and um, let's, in let's Georgia. Just, if, this it, law it, it,
0: was Nati, If we just go into the detail just just a little bit, you're talking about in in Russia, and this is a law, um, uh, the proposed one in in Georgia would class, non-government and media groups as foreign agents if they receive more than 20% of their funds from abroad, which sounds very technical. But as you're saying, the, the, the threat people are fearing is that it is a way to clamp down on lots of organizations and individuals.
1: Yes. And this includes whole spectrum of the NGOs. This law has been promoted under the guise of transparency uh, but many people feared that this law had nothing to do with transparency and this was just a weapon that would be used against the NGOs and against the media organizations. And in Georgia, uh, of course, the major issue is the is the Russian influence, Russian money, Russian funded organizations. But this law was not actually targeting organi- these organizations, but rather the Western funded organizations. And in that sense, due to uh, Georgia's um, Georgia's application to get the candidacy status from the European Union um, is uh, becoming very problematic, of course, because um, a number of European leaders have expressed uh, deep concerns about law. And what people feared, um, and as you know, the 80 percent of Georgian population is pro-EU, Uh, And what people feared was that this would deprive Georgia any opportunities, any possibilities to get the candidacy status and to proceed on its European
0: path. And the Georgian president has given her support for the protesters, hasn't she? But uh, the Georgian Dream, the majority party, has the votes to override her veto and get this through parliament. Is that right?
1: Yes, that is right. Uh, And due to the the protest, they were eventually forced to withdraw this law.
0: And so what do, you're saying most Georgians, 80%, perhaps look towards the European Union? What is their view of Russia and of the invasion of Ukraine? Uh well for Georgia the choice is uh
1: quite simple because there is no third way uh there is no uh, neutrality neutrality means it, it is oh, almost like a sort and uh, like a code word for big pro russian and uh Russia has been promoting itself Georgia's uh, neutrality uh and fortunately um even now as we speak Russia continues the occupation of Georgian territories there is the process called borderization which entails the gradual creeping occupation of uh, of Georgia by pushing the so-called administrative border lines into the Georgia-controlled territories and grabbing more land. Uh, and apart from this, we see increased uh, disinformation campaigns and in light of the war in Ukraine, these campaigns have become even more aggressive. Of course, the war in Ukraine reminds many Georgians uh, what we've experienced in 2008, and there is a lot of sympathy within the population Towards what Ukraine is going through right now, but at the same time, it increases the vulnerabilities within the society, the fear of war, and what is the uh, what what the pro-Russian forces within Georgia uh, are doing right now? They are trying to frame this war as a as a uh, as NATO against war and they um well, they they uh, addressed to the georgian population to abandon the pro european pro nato uh, aspirations in order to
0: keep stability
1: and peace within
0: the country well, thank you for that Arthur, did other countries, including in, in Europe, make a lot of mistakes in 2008? There was the Russian invasion, uh, that Georgia wasn't offered a membership plan, um, action plan for NATO, despite the efforts of George W. Bush, uh, president at the time. Was it a failure of foreign policy to give Putin more repercussions for that?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the worst possible situation for Georgia was the one it found itself in, where the possibility of its joining NATO was, was, was you know, widely discussed. Um, and you know, Russia interpreted that. One might might argue wrongly, but it interpreted that as a threat. But then, of course, it wasn't followed through. So Georgia was left exposed on its own. And as Nacho said, you know, it, it's been under Russian occupation now for for a decade and a half. Um, I think, though, that the, uh, the it would be simplistic to say that then Georgia should have joined NATO in 2008, because uh, I think there were genuine questions around. Uh, the, the readiness of the inter, interoperability of, of Georgia's armed forces. Uh, I think the one of the biggest errors was the U.S., and this, of course, was the George W. Bush era. We were still in the very forceful sort of neocon phase of, of, of that sort of period. Uh, was the U.S. trying to railroad other NATO members, uh, particularly you know, European members, who were very uneasy about this, and, and there hadn't been nearly enough kind of preparatory diplomacy um, to do it. But but what what we see now, and, and, and Nach has described it so eloquently, is a country um, that has faced extraordinary uh, pressures and interference from Russia. I, I've had the privilege of visiting Georgia, so it's quite so sort of dear to my heart. And um, uh, the constant interference in politics, the, the fact that you've got the former President Saakashvili on his deathbed, literally, uh, this is all happening. And of course, because of what's going on in Ukraine, there is there is a limited level of attention uh, in Western countries, but it, it's great that we're talking about it today.
0: Alice, it was uh, France's President Sarkozy who helped negotiate a ceasefire in Georgia in 2008, and that saw Abkhazia and South Ossetia break away. Was Should we have looked at the warnings more carefully then?
4: Uh, um. Good, good question. I mean, I think, um, everything that's happening in, in that region and, and to, to a certain extent, I think the war in, in Ukraine is, is shaking a lot of, uh, obviously French foreign policy, uh, and, and, and Russia policy, uh, foundations. I think, um, what's been, what's been really interesting, maybe focusing more on the sort of NATO angle is that, uh, the relation between Georgia and NATO has, has obviously sort of grown to, to a limited extent. I think it was interesting to see. Uh, Georgia being, um, uh, you know, represented and attending the Madrid summit last year against uh, the, the Bucharest foreign ministerial meeting and NATO really focusing on this idea of sort of building Georgian dependency and, and resilience. But obviously to, to a, to a limited extent. So, you know, there, there are discussions around stepping up political, practical support, but it, it does tend to be limited to, to more, uh, very sort of specific concrete things about chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear protection preparedness. I think Georgia has taken part in, in a cyber defense exercise. So there is the sort of bridges being built, but the big picture questions, I think um, no one in the alliance, and I know you mentioned France in particular, is, is ready to really move forward with that. So there is progress um, in, in the dialogue with, with the EU, but I think that the NATO question is still quite open.
0: And Andrew and Creon, well, there's talk of accession now, the EU, NATO. Do you think these things are just dreams now?
3: It doesn't really matter what type of government or where Georgia is. Now, it's a wider, biggest strategic question in terms of EU-NATO relations with Russia and where Georgia sits. Interesting piece in, peace in the International Affairs in the November edition by, by Roy Ellison talks about the return of potential neutral states, looking at the ideas of the examples of Finland and Austria during the Cold War and whether the likes of Ukraine and Georgia should be essentially put into that position where they, they become areas where opposing groups basically leave them alone. I think that's probably the, the best option we've got at the moment for them. If they will come I mean, into either EU or NATO,
5: that is quite escalatory from a Russian point of view. I mean, I, I, I think I agree with Andrew in a sense that, um, what has happened in Ukraine has provided a sort of a model which is, EU accession, um, with the potential of retaining neutrality, but if you like an alternative way of strengthening, uh, Ukraine's military, um, forces without membership of NATO. And in a sense, I, I don't see why at some point that shouldn't be available to Georgia as well. Um, the other thing about, um, EU membership, it, it, it is a way of offering, if you like, the kind of guarantees of, um, Political plurality, democracy, economic prosperity, without it being linked directly to, um, 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 at least at the moment, given how the EU functions, to a very substantial military element. Um, so I would I would not rule it out. Um, it may be some way off, but I think what's been developed in Ukraine could be a model for Georgia as well.
0: Really interesting point. Andrew, I suspect our Russia and Ukraine team would take you on about that point about not escalating things. But we might treat ourselves to that discussion in the canteen, which usefully resembles an underground bunker where such violent conversations can be contained. We are going to have to end there. Uh, Not the end of the subject, but the end of this podcast. A big thank you to my guests, Arthur Snell and Natia Saskuria, and from the Chatham House team, Creon Butler, Alice Dion Galland and Professor Andrew Dorman. Do follow them all on Twitter. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and all major platforms, as well as through our social media. Do like, follow, and subscribe, and please do leave us a review. I always ask, and we always like it, whatever you say. To read more from our experts, or to find out more about our events, and we have lots of them every week, or to become a member, we would love to have you don't forget to visit our website chathamhouse.org. You can find the work of the Europe and the finance programmes there and what we've been writing about the Integrated Review. If you're at the ISA conference in Montreal this week, do go and say hi to the International Affairs team. they are going to be promoting the journal as well as some IA-themed merchandise, including hats, which you might need in Canada at this time of year. Are they substantial hats?
3: We're some beanie hats because it's quite chilly here in, in uh, Canada and they're going like hot potatoes at the moment. We're We brought over 200 out here, and I don't think we're going to have any left by midday today. And there was
0: I going to ask for one. Okay, really, really useful hats, so do go and see them. Next week will mark the 20th anniversary of the US-led invasion of Iraq. We'll be speaking to Claire Short from the UK, looking to learn lessons from that extraordinary sequence of mistakes, misjudgments and decisions and hope, as well as asking, thanks to our terrific work on Iraq from our Middle East team, how the country's future now looks. Goodbye for me, Bronwyn Maddox. Thank you for listening.